Welcome to Healthy You with Andrea and Drew, episode nine. Nine. We're almost there. Mm-hmm. Almost into double digits. I feel good about this one. The last time I said we were going to be on the eve of double digits, mm-hmm. and I think I, I referenced some kind of celebration when we reached number 10. Probably. Well, it is coming up. That'll be holiday time, so. Perfect. I do enjoy a lot of the holiday sweets and treats. Biscottis and cocoa. You know it. <laughs> So, and today, let's talk a little bit today about something uh, we've talked about a few times off air, off, uh, not when we've been recording these amazing podcasts, award-winning, mm-hmm. um, the difference between a nutritionist and a dietitian. That seems to be something a lot of people interchange, yep. two terms or two professions yep. uh, that really, to most people, they're one and the same, but I know they're not. They're, and they're not, and, and, and you're absolutely right. There are some registered dietitians who do call themselves nutritionists or sports nutritionists who are truly, in fact, registered dietitians. So um, registered dietitians are protected by a college, essentially. We report to a college. um, We are recognized as a regulatory body. We are now also covered under most extended healthcare plans as the nutrition professionals as well. Because in this day and age, Drew, after nine episodes of podcasts, you could go out and call yourself a nutritionist. So uh, I don't know if I'd go that far, but, but go <laughs> But <on. laughs> that's, that's the unfortunate part right here. I've met brilliant nutritionists. I have to say that much. Um, but there's no regulation or there's no degree of whether you do a weekend course, a week course, a college diploma of calling yourself a nutritionist as opposed to what myself and all my colleagues are registered dietitians. We have completed a recognized nutrition degree at a, at a recognized university, sorry. Um, and from there, you either do your master's of nutrition or a clinical internship. And then from there, there's a lovely eight-hour exam. Um, and that's with the College of Dietitians. So I belong to the College of Dietitians of Ontario, um, and the nice thing, as I mentioned, is that there is so much nutrition information out there. And a lot of it is not evidence or research based. A lot of then we have the media, which kind of distorts some of the evidence to just, you know, make these lovely headlines um, and then just, you know, cause the consumer to not make sense of the information. So when it comes to dietitians, we are evidence-based. We look at the research. We look at what has been done before we start recommending any guidelines or diets amongst the, the mass majority. Um, and again, I have to say, I've met brilliant nutritionists, but mm-hmm. you just have to really make sure that um, the information you're getting is accredited. It is research-based. It is been tested on animals and, you know, long-term studies as well, um, as opposed to just mice and stuff like that. Um, go back to the hearsay versus the facts. Um, and, uh, and, and what's nice about the regulation now being covered under most extended healthcare plans, when I was in school, when I was going through my, my universities, I, we were only credited or, sorry, recognized under one extended healthcare plan. Mm-hmm. Now about 85, 90% of my clients are covered. So it's just really a push to recognize that you're going to, we are the recognized, regulated nutrition professional. Okay. And, you know, I was going to ask further questions to to that, but really you've, you've touched on it. The big, big thing I think would be the fact that you are accredited and it is covered by healthcare is probably why uh, a dietitian is the way most people would want to go. If it's covered, hey, why not? Absolutely. And and at the end of the day, you want to be able to sit down with someone who's not just going to say, oh, yeah, this is the diet I follow with all of my plans. It's no, it's really understanding who you are, what your history is, what your lifestyle is, and then let's make something work of that. 
Yes, and I know you are always doing research, as you've just touched on. Uh, that's co- constant, what you always do, and you're always uh, bringing yeah. new great information to the table. And I know there was something you were talking about a little earlier that you wanted to touch on in this podcast as yeah. well. Yeah, well, let's let's talk about the research around coconut oil. Have you heard of that lately? Uh, I've seen, you, you know, you, you <laughs> talked about uh, media, and that's where a lot of people get information, and there's a lot of stuff also shared on social media. Mm-hmm. And I see a lot of stuff about that on Facebook, uh, sometimes on Twitter, but more so on Facebook. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's Instagram accounts that are everything coconut, everything coconut oil. And I'm not here to say coconut oil is bad. No, no, no. It is a natural plant-based or vegetable-based oil. What you have to recognize is how much you're using in this day and age. So not to go too much into uh, the guidelines and whatnot, but coconut oil is about 90% a saturated fat. So we know, and that's natural, mm-hmm. and we know that saturated fats raise our bad cholesterol. So because of the um, the formula or the, the chemical formulation of, of, um, of coconut oil, it also has one of its fats that mimics the good cholesterol. Mm-hmm. So we do know that coconut oil increases our bad cholesterol and our good cholesterol. However... We need to remember to use it sparingly for a number of factors. One, you're still raising a bad thing. Mm -hmm. And we don't know, we do not have enough long-term research that um, can can say that coconut oil is the healthful um, plant-based oil to use um, in comparison to something like an olive oil or, or an avocado oil, which is predominantly unsaturated fat, which raises our good cholesterol and lowers our bad cholesterol. Mm-hmm. So at this point, I'm not going to go into the chemical structure and the medium chain triglycerides and the number of carbons and all that. Yeah, if you did, that's when people would hit stop. But go on. Right. <laughs> so, you know, and but that's that's what we're trying to get across here is that that science is what's really exciting to me. Mm-hmm. It is to understand that background research to then come to you and say, listen, topically for your skin, for your hair, hair, it's wonderful. But using it in meals and and cooking with it, just be mindful. Use it sparingly. And if we're if to put something in uh, relation here, coconut oil is about ninety percent saturated fat. Butter is about 60, 64% saturated fat. So I had a patient a little while ago, for instance, who I was doing a dietary assessment, and he came in for, uh, I think it was diabetes and cholesterol, borderline. And he was telling me that he was cooking with coconut oil. I'm like, oh, what made you decide to do that? And he said, well, I heard it, and I read some things, so we just made the switch. And I said, well, I would just be mindful about how much you're using and how often you're using it because, it, yes, it does a good thing to our good cholesterol. And we know that only from short-term studies, by the way. Um, but it also raises our bad cholesterol. I said, now, if you enjoy the flavor of it, put a little bit here and there. And he said, no, I hate the flavor. So why am I using it? So it's just that misinformation piece. You really have to understand the science behind everything before you get the layman information. And you really have to read beyond the news article headlines sometimes to get the full story as well. So... And if you are using coconut oil, you want to make sure it's a virgin coconut oil because unfortunately a number of the products, because everyone wants to sell coconut oil, mm-hmm. um, have just been a, more processing to them uh, and you're not going to get 
the same benefits. Okay, so there you go. It's that research that you were talking about that is done by the professionals. And uh, again, just the misinformation out there, uh, especially on social media, magazines, and so on and so on. But here's something I have to ask about because this is something that was all over the place. You know where I'm going with this. The processed meats that we are apparently, well, uh, apparently if you eat a piece of processed meat, you're going to die instantly, according to some of the stuff I've (laughs) seen online. Uh, (laughs) But but that's something that's uh, been talked about and been shared a lot on, uh, uh, again, different websites and whatnot over the last little bit. So what are your, your thoughts on that? I'm curious because I enjoy some of that stuff. I don't have it all the time, but I do enjoy it. So let's talk about that a bit. And and you're right. There are a number of articles. And I actually wrote an article on this a couple weeks ago because I was just so astonished by what can happen from a uh, World Health Organization article. So the IARC, which is an independent group of cancer research that works within the uh, the World Health Organization, actually released this information in 2002. Oh, wow. So it was funny because as soon as my mom heard the news article, she texted me and she's like, hey, you know, I want to let you know. And I'm like, I'm great that more people are becoming aware. I remember hearing this back in the day. So the IRC kind of looked at let's let's take this information that came out of 2002, which said processed meats and processed meats being processed bologna, um, red meats, uh, your deli meats, your hot dogs, your frankfurts, that kind of thing, um, cause cancer, primarily colorectal cancer. So now let's take this little, let's take the time to look at all the research and the way that our lifestyles and meat consumption has changed over the years and the rate of cancer increase over the years. And let's try to see if there's any other kind of correlation with it. So They looked at all the research, and because the average diet has increased in meat consumption as well, they found it, you know, weary enough to let's look a little bit closer. What became the big thing was processed meats and, like, red meats and Mm. stuff like that. So what they found was that there is concrete evidence that shows consumption of processed meats. Now, when they're looking at consumption, they're looking at 50 grams of processed meats every day. Mm. <laughs> That's a big is sandwich. related to yes, is related to um, carcinogenic compounds that we know um, basically cause colorectal cancer. Okay, they yeah. also looked at stomach and pancreatic cancer. That was the primary research. It was it was there was significance to it, and they said we need to let the world know. Mm-hmm. Besides that, and I've always said this, processed is processed. Processed means that something is changed from its original form in order to make it more shelf-stable and stay on the counter for longer, stay on the shelves for longer, whatever it is. So although they didn't look at your deli meats, uh, like your turkey and your chicken and stuff like that, those do have the nitrates Mm -hmm. and stuff like that that we do have to still be very mindful of. The red meat kind of got out of proportion. So though they found very, very limited in uh, evidence that does link it to some types of cancer, it was not concrete. We know that we should, from a heart health perspective again, um, we should be limiting our red meat to about once a week. And that comes in the form of, you know, your steak and, and your your burger meat and all that kind of uh, items for the, the consumer. So we know that we should be limiting, but however, there is so much nutrition in it. So, you know, iron, protein, good sources, and, you know, a little bit of saturated fat. We all need that little bit. So in a nutshell, 
no to the red meat, very limited evidence. However, limited evidence also means that there is some evidence. So if you are having red meat four or five times a week, you might want to try to cut back on it. Um, and the processed meats, there is that. But again, it looked at large amounts. And at the end of the day, you just have to, you know, ask yourself, it's processed. So how much of it can I... Yes, and I think that's going to go back to something we've said in every, every edition of Healthy You, moderation. Yeah, moderation. And, you know, I grew, we grew up on processed meats, Mm -hmm. oven roast turkey breast, you know, three, four times a week, prosciutto, salami, mortadella. What you have to recognize from back in the day to what the food system is now is the food system has also changed drastically. So there are so many alternatives that we can do for sandwich sandwich fillings, egg salad, chicken salad, turkey salad, as far as, you know, fresh chicken and turkey. Um, prosciutto and salami is naturally cured. So every little once in a while, is it higher in saturated fat? Yes, but it is more naturally cured than the other ones. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just, you know, take it with a grain of salt, read beyond the headlines If an article has a research paper that is quoted in it, go look at the abstract or the short summary of what that research looked at, and you might be able to break things down a little more. So take it with a grain of salt, or in the case of the the salt used to cure the prosciutto, (laughs) a lot of salt. How about your website so everyone can get get in touch with you? I knew you were going to spin something out of that. Um, AndreaFalcone.ca. So that's all contacts. and uh, yeah, that's me. Yeah, check it out online. It's a great website with a lot of information and, of course, how they can uh, get in, everyone can get in touch with you. And we are going to be back very soon with another edition. And then it is officially double digits. Yes. Number 10, who's bringing the cake? We'll, well chat soon. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>